Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and on today's podcast, we are joined by Timofey Milovanov, president of the Kyiv School of Economics. Thank you so much for joining us. To start, could you just give us a brief introduction to what the Kyiv School of Economics is? Kyiv School of Economics is, uh, first of all, a university, the top university in Ukraine. It's a small one. But that's the university which has uh, Western-trained PhD faculty and is very, very dynamically developing university. It also is a charitable foundation, which does a lot of humanitarian work during the war. We raised and facilitated over $40 million since the beginning of the war. And it is a think tank with over 60 analysts. Uh, primarily working on uh, damage assessment, um, sanctions, and on monitoring of Ukrainian and Russian economies. And The Economist or the Financial Times or the New York Times, the Washington Post, they all cite the reports by the Kiev School of Economics uh, Institute, that's KC Institute's think tank. So we also have a business school. Um, so I oversee the strategic development of these four directions, uh, and I oversee fundraising. So how would you describe the state of the Ukrainian economy prior to Russia's full-scale invasion on February 24th? It grew about 3-4%. The GDP reached uh, 200, nominal GDP reached $200 uh, billion, and it was in, in, in a good shape. Um, I wish it could grow at 7% rate, <laughs> but 4% was not bad. Uh, it was coming out of the pandemics um, quite decently. The hit of the pandemics was smaller than in the EU, by the way. Uh, so Ukraine was more resilient to the pandemics in terms of economics. And the inflation was at 2 or 3%, so it was controlled. So, you know, the economy was in good shape. It, it was growing. Uh, it wasn't hit that hard during the pandemic, and uh, inflation was under control. Yeah, the real wages have grown up quite a bit, so we were doing well. What was the most immediate effect of the invasion on Ukraine's economy? Of the invasion per se, it is difficult to immediately say because you know so many things change. Essentially, the economy changes from the market economy to the war type of economy. That still means that the markets operate, but a lot of uh, production gets coordinated by the government, and the preferences of the you know from the consumers change. To make it specific, you know, the demand for movies or spa services is small, you know, close to non-existent. Although it is rebounding right now at the Christmas season. The movies are full. The movie theaters are full. I probably will do a tweet thread on this. You know, on structurally, of course, uh, it shuts down the investment. Uh, logistically, because of the war and of the blockade of the ports, of what Russia bombards the infrastructure, and uh, the expert capabilities drop significantly, and the costs of expert become much, much higher. 
then the Russian military targeted our manufacturing capabilities strategically in the beginning of the war. So there we took some damage. Some of this is irreparable. Some manufacturing plants won't be ever repaired because they, it was huge investment during the Soviet Union times. It's just not, not going to be possible to finance anything like that today after the war. Um, but as the war developed, the issues that we have seen is migration and labor force changes, human capital flight, and at the same time, some people are coming back or came back, you know, so there are some mechanisms which respond to these shocks. So what we have seen is that the economy is extremely resilient, but we don't know how deeply this strategic capacity for resilience goes. Because the way it works, let's say you hit a power plant, there is a backup power plant, then you hit a backup power plant, there is another. But at some point you run out of these backup power plants, you have to be restoring the first ones. But many of these things are difficult to restore and takes years to restore. So the resilience is there, but uh, we don't know the depths of it when it comes to specific uh, energy grid. What we have seen with the logistics is a lot of investment almost immediately um, in those ports which are still operational and also at the border. We see two absorption mechanisms for the labor force. One is uh, volunteer or philanthropy work, but IDPs are helping IDPs, you know, refugees are helping refugees. And also we see a lot of informal economy. Informal economy in the sense that it's not shadow economy, but it's just not priced. For example, at the Kiev School of Economics, we invested into buying generators, electricity, mini stations, and you know, shelters, you know, changing the ventilation system, drilling wells to get water. So we, we have done a lot of things. It actually is reflected as pure cost. But in fact, that allows people to come and stay at the school uh, during blackouts, and we don't charge for that. So it will never show into any kind of accounting, right? But that's value creation, right? So in that sense, there's a lot of informal economy, and the economy goes on. But I worry that this resilience and strategic capacity has to be replenished uh, because it's not infinite. What does the transition to a post-war economy look like? Well, I think people have this picture that one day the war will be over. You know, it's like uh, black and white. But it's a little bit uh, different because Russia is not going anywhere and the threat of missiles will stay forever. Unless Russia falls and Putin dies and they have an explicit defeat and they surrender, which is, you know, not the most likely scenario. I think the most likely scenario is that uh, Ukraine will push Russian troops back to the borders of Ukraine at some point, and then Russia will have to decide whether they continue to attack or save face and declare some kind of ceasefire or something with occasional escalations. But escalations will be there, so it will be difficult for the war to completely go away. The trauma will be there, the minefields will be there. So in that sense, it's a dynamic, continuous process, and the missiles will still be coming occasionally. So we need the air defense, air force, but we also need <laughs> a lot of redundancy in energy and logistics and transportation and uh, 
medical support and pensions and veterans uh, integration and everything like that. So in that sense, the challenges are enormous, just the sheer scope of it. But if we talk pragmatics, uh, one is immediate power grid issues. A lot of equipment uh, is very difficult to restore and we might collapse the entire economy if we continue that path, if we're not restoring fast enough. So it's an arms race a little bit. You know, Russia is trying to damage the power grid as as fast as they can. We're trying to rebuild it. We need more support and not every country is fast enough helping us. We're grateful for every help we get, but we need more. And and it's better to send us more weapons and air defense because that's how you invest into economy, by the way, Um, in stopping the war early and this nightmare for the entire world. Then the second one is going to be people. People are going to be traumatized. That's a real challenge. And it's already is a challenge. On top of that, you have veterans. You have to integrate veterans. Um, we will see the composition, what the composition of human capital will be. So most likely we will need some professional upskilling or retraining. That's on labor market. Logistics will be different. You know, I hope we will get all the ports back and we'll be able to work with them. But nonetheless, we want to continue to diversify our ways of export through Western borders, through railroad or uh, trucks, truck paths, and then rebuilding. Rebuilding costs are enormous. We have about 5 to 7% of residential housing damage to destroy. So we're talking about tens of billions of dollars only there, if not hundreds. Just raising this amount of funds, deploying it, rebuilding is going to be challenging it will have to be done but it's going to be an enormous project as we see cities and villages liberated honestly it seems like temporary infrastructure is established almost immediately yeah temporary infrastructure gets set up immediately let's say post office comes back immediately with uh, some mail delivery services, products, uh, even banking services come back immediately. Pensions are being paid. Uh, then you get telecoms enter the villages or cities. Um, you have uh, grocery retailers come in, then logistical companies, then uh, warehouses start being rebuilt, and then the rest of the business starts showing up. And if you drive around Kyiv in the areas which have been damaged during the Battle of Kyiv, then you can see that a lot, a lot already have been rebuilt or being rebuilt, but not all. So some businesses don't have money or don't have cash or lost personnel or leadership. Um, So not everything is being rebuilt. And bringing people back is a challenge too, I think. Um, If their houses are destroyed or they have moved away, they might or might not be willing to come back. So you have a combination of the need for major capex, capital investment, and you need to make it attractive for people to come back or for others to come. And you probably won't be able to do it everywhere. So there should be some coordination after the war on how it's done. For now, we let the market forces work with some government hand on top of that, you know, kind of leading hand. Uh, we will see if that approach is the right one. Maybe more coordination is needed. Maybe less. We don't know. But the the capex, is, you know, f- raising funds for capex and bringing people back um, is critical for success. Just one is not enough. 
In fact, if you do do just one, it's a disaster. If you rebuild, but there are no people, or if people come back, but there's no rebuilding, that's a disaster either way. So that's the challenge. Could you give us a sense of how long it might take to transition a village from uninhabitable to survivable and ultimately to livable? Days or weeks, we typically have uh, post offices coming and telecom, sometimes groceries. Um, and after that, we, we get, uh, you know, more retailers coming in. Uh, we get hospital support, we get schools reopen. Um, so the first, basically the way it goes, you need immediate infrastructure, which is electricity, medicine, food, and communications. Mm-hmm. So that's what the second one is businesses around that to make that infrastructure more livable. So you get schools reopen, some NGOs come in, humanitarian support, you know, um, a lot of, uh, you know, your home depot kind of style coming back in that people can start rebuilding or buying necessary stuff. And then the third wave is more normal businesses, the kind of peacetime businesses, which, which are not immediately related to reconstruction or survivability. So the first wave, I think, is, you know, days. The second one is weeks. And the last one is months. What do you think needs to happen for Ukrainians not only to return to their communities wherever possible, but also to have the confidence to then actively participate in the local economy? During the wartime, trust is built on what you see. You can't just trust the promises, you know, because no promises were kept during the war. Russia promised not to attack. They didn't keep their promise. If a local official says, oh, you know, there'll be, everything's going to be rebuilt tomorrow, most likely it, it will not be enough for people. They want to see things rebuilt. So you, you want to have these pilots, in my view, you want to experiment with some pilot cities and villages which become role models of uh, new urban development or rural development. The implementation of the very idea of build back better as the EU idea of how you want to recover. So these villages or cities become brands. Then you can connect to say, oh, you know, it was possible to do it in Makari for Borodyanka. Uh, so, you know, we will be able to do it here in this specific city or village. So you need success stories. You need role models. Have you noticed a change in the economic relationships with neighboring countries? We've seen a lot of support for Ukraine from, for example, the Baltic states. The Baltic states, um, you know, showing a lot of leadership in disengaging economically and politically with Russia. And they're also some of the best supporters when it comes to the immediate uh, needs for reconstruction. Um, so I think the, the bond will grow and therefore the trade and the investment. So that's my, my, my view. I'm a little nervous to ask this question, but how would you describe the relationship with Belarus at this point? Maybe close to non-existent. It feels um, that they have made their choice. Uh, who they are with were being bombed and attacked from the north. We have been invaded from the Belarusian territory. So in my personal view, they are accomplices, and though no one officially declared the war, they are fighting with Russia. So in my view, 
the government of Belarus is our enemy because they have sided with Russia. Of course, they have not deployed the troops. And my understanding is that they come under a lot of pressure from Russia to do so. And I hope they will not. If any humanity is left with them, you know, they should not. But they also should understand that the moment they will deploy their troops, this will be the end of the Lukashenko regime. It's going to be just a question of time. What about the relationship with China? Because they seem a little on the fence. No, China plays both sides or not both, you know, 150 sides. Um, But they're clearly the pivotal player. And if they wanted this war to stop, they could just disengage with Russia. And that will be it. They have the power to stop the war. And they're not willing to use it. So people die because of their indecision or decision not to act. Well, so some European allies have been criticized for being slow to act um, or being lukewarm in their response. Do you feel like France and Germany, for example, have been stepping up to the plate? That is true. Germany is amazing, though, in the sense that they both become a huge scandal in the sense of relying on Russia for energy supplies, basically became addicts. But it's also the role model in terms of the speed of disengagement. Yeah, I only wish that Germany would be a role model in terms of military and economic support for Ukraine as well. None of it would be possible if the world responded in 2008 when Russia invaded Georgia in the same way with sanctions that the world is responding now. There would not be 2014 Crimea or the east of Ukraine. There wouldn't be 2022 Ukraine and there wouldn't be Syria, you know. And this complacency has a cost. And people who continue to be complacent, uh, whether they're in denial or they're just being hypocritical about, you know, we deserve peace, but others don't, these people are guilty of hundreds of thousands of people dying around the world. Yeah, I think there's this famous quote of Albert Einstein about... Uh, the evil blossoming because of inaction of others or bystanders. We have given up asking people to close the skies, uh, but at least give us weapons, at least give us air defense. Uh, And we have been asking for this from the very beginning. People are saying, oh, you know, we're not going to give you javelins or and laws because it's going to escalate the war. We're not going to give you artillery because it's going to escalate the war. We're not going to give you high marks or anything because it's gonna it's always an excuse but then you know every time nothing happens you know uh you have to give weapons you know they get deployed and actually protects human lives we liberate villages and we find torture chambers you know of course it's much much more convenient to live in the world in which you say oh it's peace they're not shooting anymore and you don't know what's happening in those torture chambers in the villages under the occupation of russia but the war goes on there even if it's uh, peace according to the definition of some of politicians in the west so it's not specific to france it's just this movement uh, that believes that somehow peace saves lives they should go visit these uh, torture chambers before they make a judgment call on how things have to be resolved. Maybe they will get real afterwards. Maybe, maybe not. So do you think that 
Europe's move away from Russian energy, does it feel like it's temporary? Or do you think that the EU countries are really, truly finding long-term alternatives? They're changing the infrastructure and the networks and uh, connectors and the pipelines. So there is disagreement about whether it's temporary or structural. My view, it is structural and permanent. And by permanent, I mean decades. Of course, there will be temptation and the hope for a lot of businessmen and some politicians for for business to go back to, you know, usual or normal with Russia. How is it going to go? You know, who's going to go and meet with the officials in Moscow, shake hands and drink, uh, I don't know, whiskey together in the evening? Russia has become toxic. And in that sense, it's a very structural reason. Business would and politicians would want to, to things to become normal, but no one would want to be that guy who went to Moscow to sign the contract, you know, who's going to put a signature on a contract, you know, who's going to take that responsibility? I don't think so. I think not for a while. Yeah. It seems like historically Russia hasn't really kept their word regarding anything. Now, with Russia being increasingly volatile, how does something like international trade persist? I mean, can it persist? So as long as it continues to stay in this state of affairs, it will threaten to use military as a tool. That is going to create jeopardize, at least, food security, at least in global south. People will be hungry because of the Russian sanctions. So in that sense, we need to demilitarize Russia. We have to find a way to force Russia to stop using military as a foreign policy tool. If we achieve that, then it will be okay with food security. Ukraine will ship grains and people will gather. If it does not, then the shipments will be limited. Just because of the threat of the insurance costs, of the possibility, of the perception, of less investment. This is actually almost textbook case of economics where uncertainty suppresses uh, incentives to invest. Even if nothing is happening, the risk of something happening it will make farmers less willing to invest and insurance will charge more. And so the costs will be higher and less will be produced. So in that sense, yes. You know, you would think that it is good for them to have at least one mechanism in which they cooperate so they can play both sides, you know, and say, but even with the grain deal, they, they are not that cooperative and they're trying to undermine it all the time. And at the same time, they have shown their weakness, you know, because they tried to pull out from the grain deal and everyone said, screw you, you're going ahead anyway, but they came back. So they're trying to sabotage by being at the table. They're not trying to have a channel for diplomacy or economic diplomacy, which means they're not in the stage that we can talk about them stopping to use military as a foreign policy tool. They, they're, just, they're still in the stage where they want to go all in. What kind of economic subsidies are there now? And do you think that will change? There are uh, subsidies now, and there are IFIs, there are World Bank programs and, and such, you know. They have always been, and the World Bank has been trying to help structurally with the land market reform. Actually, I did the land market reform when I was the Minister of Economy. That's, that's my main policy success, I think, in my tenure there. 
and I'm very proud of it. The capital markets and the financial markets are imperfect in Ukraine, far from perfect. Therefore, the subsidies have already been there to equal the playing field, level it up a little bit. So in that sense, I think the subsidies will continue, but is there enough subsidies and who should be doing those subsidies? Should it be Ukrainian government subsidizing Ukrainian farmers so that they can ship to the global south while the Russia is bombarding the routes? No, I think it's uh, Western countries have to confiscate Russian assets and then subsidize the farmers in such a way. You can simply say, mm-hmm. listen, 10% of what has been confiscated in certain assets, you know, you deploy as the subsidy for farmers. You know, you have to pay for the cost of the mining of the fields, uh, logistics and you know, specific programs. Yeah, you can do that. You mentioned earlier that there are manufacturing centers in Ukraine that have been irreparably damaged. Are there entire industries that have at this point been lost? No, not yet. Not in my, to my knowledge, but some have been damaged quite a bit. Metallurgy, for example. Mariupol had the major plants. Some facilities in Zaporizhia, Kriviri have come under a lot of attack. Can, can you explain what's going on with the Russian ruble? No. <laughs> you know this joke for about economists um, that out of the uh, last three financial crises, the economists explained eight. But we can, of course, we can. <laughs> but can we? Could we have predicted it? <laughs> and the answer is obviously no, right? So economists are very, and markets too, are very bad at predicting things. And you know, as Russia becomes more isolated and more toxic, the market forces become weaker there. In that sense, it's like with their government and politics. Because it's not a democracy, we know still that the government changes. And we know that Putin will be out of power. Either he will be dead, you know, from natural causes, he's old, or he's going to be shot or poisoned, or he will be kicked out. You know, at some point this will happen because we look at the history of Russia from Tsarists to Bolsheviks to the Soviet Union to more recent. That's what happens there. But unlike a democracy, it's not predictable. We don't know when it happens and we don't know in which form. The same is true about market forces. As an economy becomes more closed and isolated and more reliant on the government, and actually it gets isolated because of the government decisions, market forces become weaker. So it's not predictable. So we know that eventually there will be a crisis, economic crisis, a severe one, because it used to be a large open economy, now it's been getting isolated. When and through which channels, it's very difficult to predict because the government will be responding, the Russian government, to these challenges. And it will be their decision which channels to use to respond. Now they don't want to defend ruble, but in some sense, or in many ways, it doesn't really matter. Because it's like uh, during the Soviet Union times, you know, $1 cost 66 kopecks, you know. Uh, ruble was stronger, the Soviet ruble, than... Uh, than uh, US dollars. But you you know, if you try to buy it on a street or somewhere, it would be, you know, two, three, four rubles for a dollar. And if you did, that would be a criminal offense. So uh, I think Russia is heading that way with very limited trade. What specific objective they are pursuing right now? I guess they, you know, there's some pressure on ruble because of the budget deficit. So these are early symptoms with what we have seen in the data already that for this, you know, like this Gazprom tax and the money being transferred from the uh, National Wealth Fund 
now ruble these are all symptoms of uh, structural weaknesses in the economy because of isolations and sanctions but are, are the symptoms of a collapse soon i'm not sure maybe maybe not you know we don't know yet uh come spring if the price cap matters and it will things will be tougher for russia how do you think ukraine's budgetary priorities are going to shift it's going to be you know military defense for the decades mm-hmm. um, then there'll be rebuilding reconstruction but uh, the military will be it used to be four five percent of gdp before the war now it's very well might be 10 20 even after the war and do you think we'll start to see more of a focus on weapons manufacturing in ukraine and more partnerships like the one with bayraktar absolutely there are many partnerships like that being developed now. The defense innovation in Ukraine is booming. Some of it is kind of moms and pops or garage. Some of it is potentially scalable and is of interest or could be of interest. We've got light back. Or well, look at this. Electricity is back in our building. Yeah, so uh, yeah, everyone is a bit excited here. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I think there are a lot of partnerships being forged right now. Could you talk about some of the initiatives the Kiev School of Economics is involved in right now? There are so many. <laughs> Kiev School of Economics is a community of people who are in Ukraine, who are in Kiev, who are very, very energetic and resilient and smart and educated and patriotic. So, you know, if we talk about students, they run this, you know, they help children, they help rebuilding, they do debate clubs, you know, they debate in propaganda. And if we talk about our colleagues and faculty, they, you know, some do this damage assessment reports. Yesterday we had a sanction conference, you know, where we all were debating in person here in Kiev at the Kiev School of Economics, how to impose more sanctions. We do something on demining. Uh, it's important for us. So we are accelerating startups who are thinking about how to demine efficiently. I might run a fundraising campaign for uh, a demining company, Ukrainian company. We just raised a lot of money for bomb shelters in schools. We are retrofitting tens or maybe at some point hundreds of uh, basements so they can qualify as bomb shelters. We are bringing generators to help uh, establish um, sort of resilience centers for institutions around us. We continue to help hospitals, so even military, with training, education, and also with even with bulletproof vests. So we do all kinds of things, you know. But we try to do it in a systemic way that we scale up the existing impact. You know, we take an institution or a need, we run a fundraiser campaign, and then we hope that they, you know, they can do more. So we like matching mechanisms, we like... Uh, real need we like uh, consulting on fundraising um we're, we're trying to create uh, a scale here yeah. and how might a person support any of these projects follow my twitter there's usually typically a pinned post with the current campaign or you can pin me on twitter and talk but the easiest way is to make a 10 or 20 dollars donation or 10 or 20 million dollars donations you know whatsoever <laughs> either both and if you give us you know 100k or 200k we will 
build, you know, help rebuild a clinic in Makarev. This is example. If you give us 50, we'll create, we'll uh, equip and train a couple of teams of the uh, uh, miners, guys who disable mines. If you give us $20, we'll, we'll buy a present for Christmas or uh, New Year or, you know, past New Year or something for an, a kid in an orphanage, you know, so. Beyond financial support, what are some other ways that you would recommend people get involved? We need to stop the war. And with Russia, it means to push them back because diplomacy has not worked with them and they're not negotiating in good faith. Um, that means air defense and offensive capabilities. So, you know, write a letter to your politician and ask to give Ukraine more capabilities to push Russia out of villages and cities that it occupies. So you can write that letter. You can also get informed. I think it's a it's a right and also responsibility of a democratic citizen to be informed rather than to be subject to propaganda or someone else's opinion. So get informed. And then write about Ukraine. You know, Ukraine and Russia is a very clear-cut case. Russia has built an industry of killing people. It's not just the Kremlin, it's tens of thousands of people who are pressing these buttons, encoding coordinates, supplying fuel to missiles. But it's also tens of millions of people who are happily cheering behind this enterprise. Just based on the emotion of hatred to other humans. This is very dark. We know from history where it can lead us once that negative, dark emotion gets commodified and produced at the industrial level. And that's what Russia does now. Ukraine, with all these challenges, all its faults, all its problems, throughout the 30 years of independence and before that 70 years under the Soviet Union, has somehow been able to nurture the best part of humanity. You know, Every time there was a turn, Ukraine has taken the right turn over the last 30 years. There were so many opportunities to take the wrong turns, you know, to become a dictatorship, authoritarian, you know, not to move for democracy, not to try to beat the EU, not to go to protest, not to protect our country, give up, surrender. We have not done that ever. Every time we have made the right decision as society. That's the best of humanity. And so it's not Russia against Ukraine. It's that dark side in us that we all have against the good side in us that we all have. And so, you know, stay stay with us, stay with the, the best of humanity. It will be past us, it just, um, I just worry how many people will die. Timofey, I want to thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you. We've been talking with Timofey Milovanov, president of the Kiev School of Economics. You can find him on Twitter, at Milovanov, That's M-Y-L-O-V-A-N-O-V. Join us again over the weekend for some more interviews. And join me again next week as we jump right back into our regular updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. 
You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.